I know that uh, Stephen just prayed, but I'd love to, uh, before I dig in here, uh, pray as well. So just please uh, join with me just for a second. Jesus, we, uh, we know that you're alive, that you rule, that you reign. You're seated at the right hand of the Father. You've given us your word. You've given us your spirit. And I pray that your spirit would enlighten our hearts today, um, that we would be open uh, to hearing from you. Um, God, I, I pray for discouraged hearts. Um, God, I pray for indifferent hearts. Um, I pray for expectant, joyful hearts. Um, God, I pray for hard hearts in this place. Um, and Jesus, that you would come. Spirit, that you would uh, be here. Not that we have to ask. Uh, we know that you are. Um, and that you would give to each what they need uh, today as we open up your word and consider uh, the life of someone um, who a long journey to discovering uh, the beauty and the supremacy, um, the majesty, um, and the greatness of Jesus. And I pray that we would discover the same here this morning. I pray and ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, so as you guys know, we've been working through First Peter. Um, it's kind of our bread and butter. Pick a book of the Bible, go through it verse by verse. We've been doing that for quite some time now. And... Um, <clears throat> Peter's been encouraging us and uh, telling us and showing us how we are to, as believers, as followers of him, how we're to live out our faith uh, in a world that's really not excited about our faith or the one who we have faith in, right? How do we live out our faith on the margins when we're a discarded, marginal people? Um, and so Peter's been encouraging us in that, and it's been a great teaching series so far. I've personally benefited uh, from it, and I know you guys have too. Uh, but on All About Him 19, we thought it would be cool as, if we were working through, as we've been working through Peter's letter uh, to focus on Peter himself. And we've been looking a lot at the letter that Peter wrote, and we really haven't focused or talked much about Peter himself. And the thought is to consider Peter's story, right? To consider his journey and how Peter came to discover the supremacy of Jesus on the weekend where we celebrate in a special way the supremacy of Jesus. So what we're going to do is we're going to take a look briefly at Peter's bio, and then we're going to move to five short stories, five interactions uh, that Peter has with Jesus where he encountered and experienced Jesus on his way to becoming a guy and a man that was all about him. So just very briefly about Peter. Uh, Peter was a disciple. We know that. And eventually became an apostle. Uh, and he was so along with his brother Andrew. Andrew was a disciple as well. Peter was married. I don't know if you knew that. Uh, 1 Corinthians 9 talks about Peter being married. He brought his wife along with him as he went and planted churches and visited churches. Uh, he had a mother-in-law who Jesus healed, which I love this story because Peter's mother-in-law is sick. And so he's like, Jesus, come heal my mother-in-law. And the text says that Jesus laid hands on her and healed her. And then she arose and made them food, which is what you do after Jesus heals you, right? Like you make him food, right, if he's in your house. And so that's a good mother-in-law there, a good host, great in hospitality. I love that story. And um, Peter was uh, a small business owner. Some of you guys can really resonate with here. He was a fisherman. He was a blue-collar guy. He worked hard for a living. He was a man. He had a beard, which is what you have when you're a man. You have a beard, right? <laughs> There's only two people that can't grow beards, women and children. I am neither of those, right? Like, we grow beards. That's what we do. 
So Peter is like, if you shook his hand, like his hands were callous, they were rough, right? And you guys who just grind it out week in and week out, tough jobs, hard jobs, exhausting jobs, Peter's that guy, right? He was a dude, he was a tough guy, a rough guy, right? Of all the disciples and all the future apostles, Peter is the most familiar of all the 12. He is spoken of more than any of the other disciples and any of the other apostles. Just really, really quick, Peter's name is mentioned 210 times in the scriptures. Paul's name is mentioned 142 times, and the combined names of all the other apostles is mentioned 142 times. So Peter himself is focused on and featured much in the scriptures. Peter was a leader, the leader, you could say, among the 12 sort of a first among equals. Of all the list of the disciples that you see in the scriptures, Peter's name's listed first, right? Peter's always listed first. And of course, to be a leader, you have to be a bit of a upfront person, right? A vocal person, right? Someone who's willing to stand up, have some courage, say a few things. And Peter was definitely that. One pastor called Peter the apostle with the foot-shaped mouth, right? Always inserting foot into mouth, and personally, I can resonate with a guy like Peter because I am always sticking my foot in my mouth, right? As someone who has a tendency to get himself in a little bit of a trouble and step over the line with his mouth, I can resonate with a guy like Peter. But Peter was often quick to speak. He was a bit of a front man for the group. There were a number of times that, sp- that Peter spoke on behalf of the other disciples. He was always coming forth and, and saying things on behalf of the rest, He would say things and ask the questions that everyone was thinking, even afraid sometimes. So he would ask questions like, what's the explanation of this parable? Or or he would say something out loud that everybody else was was thinking. He gave statements of confession for the other disciples. And even though ignorant at times, he still spoke confidently. Um, So Peter had um, this tendency to just get himself in trouble with his mouth. Um, Peter had a forceful personality as well. You could brash, you could say, right? Just always just like come in hard. His presence was always felt. He was the only one that tried to stop Jesus from washing his feet, right? Do you guys remember that? John, right, upper room, washes everybody's feet. Peter's like, no, no, you're not washing my feet, right? And it has this like big thing with Jesus, and Jesus has to like rebuke him and put him in his place again. Only one that did that. He was, he was part of that group, too, that was shooing kids away from Jesus. All right, he declared himself at one time, I don't know if you guys remember this, he declared himself to be the most devoted disciple and guaranteed that he would never deny Jesus, though everybody else would, he wouldn't. And let's not forget the time that he swung a sword and lopped a Roman soldier's ear off uh, in the garden at Gethsemane, right? So, so this is Peter. This is who we're talking about here. You could say that Peter wore his heart on his sleeve. You never had to guess what Peter was thinking, feeling in a single moment. <clears throat> Peter was rarely without something to say, and his presence was always felt. And these are good qualities to have as a leader, but sometimes it works against you. There was the famous time that Jesus asked the disciples who he was, right? And Jesus turns to the disciples and says, who do you guys think that I am? What's my identity? Who am I? And Peter rightly confessed that Jesus was the son of God, right? You're God in the flesh. You're God that's come down to live with us and be with us. You're the long-waited and anticipated Messiah that the Old Testament scriptures spoke of. You're the son of God. 
And Peter, and Jesus looks at Peter and says, Peter, you're right. And he gets this major kudos for that, right? This major props from Jesus says, you're absolutely right, Peter. And then in the very next moment, moment, Peter tried talking Jesus out of going to the cross. The entire reason he came. And Jesus told him, right? He accused him of being a Satan-inspired stumbling stone. Peter, whose name means stone, in that moment, right? Great kudos, knows exactly who Jesus is, and then tries to stop him from going to the cross. And Jesus looks at him and goes, get behind me, Satan, right? You're a mouthpiece for Satan right now, Peter. And not, you're not a building stone, right? You're a stumbling stone right now. In a single instance, he received huge praise from Jesus and then immediately received sharp criticism. Peter did some amazing things, and then he would do something extremely foolish right after that. Here's another example. In Acts 2, Peter's preaching, right? The day of Pentecost. 3,000 believe and are baptized because of Peter just simply getting up and giving a presentation as to who Jesus was and calling people to faith and repentance in him. And then in Galatians 2, he's leading an entire community in hypocrisy and tearing down gospel ministry and gospel work to the point where Paul has to rebuke him to his face. This is Peter, right? Up, down, here, there. Extreme highs, extreme lows. He was all over the place. Peter was a very human disciple, very flesh and blood. At times he was apprehensive towards Jesus. At times he seemed to be the most devoted. And at other times he displayed doubt, discouragement, denial, foolishness. And I don't know about you, but in considering Peter's biography, I find comfort in that. I find comfort in considering, right, that Peter was a bit of a screw-up. That God was at work in his life and he bore fruit. And at times he was just didn't get it right. And he failed, made a fool of himself. I think sometimes we like to put individuals in the scripture in front of you as good examples of faith and devotion to Christ, and yet never mention nor find encouragement and comfort in their failures, that they're men, and the best of men are men at best, and that we're sinners. And Peter encourages me in the reality of my inconsistent discipleship and devotion to Christ. Everybody on, anybody in here on all the time? Anybody in here experience discouragement, inconsistency in their devotion to Christ? Yeah, I do too. And if that's you, we find encouragement in Peter. Why? Because Jesus loves him and uses him for his mission. And if Jesus can use Peter for his mission, if Jesus can love Peter, you know what that means? That Jesus has room in his heart to love me and to love you. Reminds me of a quote I've been chewing on for a while by Robert Capon. says this, we are nothing more, speaking of the church, we are nothing more than a random sampling of the broken, sinful, half-cocked world that God and Christ loves. To posture as anything else would be false advertisement. To posture as if we're something else or other than broken, inconsistent, and resembling Peter would be to posture and would be false advertisement. This is who we are. Peter is a great example of who we all are in Christ. And it is precisely because of his love and covenant commitment toward us inconsistent, glorious ruins, us broken, sinful, inconsistent, failing at times, bearing fruit at times. It's precisely because of his love toward us that we're all about him. Amen? That we would be honest about our lives, 
that we would be honest about who we are in our hearts and what we got going on in our lives, and then to come to see that he's still committed to us in covenant. He still loves us. He still embraces us. He still cares to use us for his mission. That's the gospel. That's a wonderful truth. This is the God that we serve, and because of that, we're all about him. So I'd like to shift now to five vignettes, little short stories of Peter's interactions with Jesus and to see how he came to discover, right, this mess of a guy, this, this fisherman, this, this basic average Joe guy, how he came to discover that Jesus is supreme, that Jesus is amazing, that Jesus is wonderful, and there's nothing else in this world that's greater than him. I got five short stories, all right? Now I'm going to mention the scriptures for these, but we're not going to read them and get into the weeds. I'm going to cover the story broadly. You can write the scriptures down, go back, read the stories yourself, and we're going to highlight on a specific truth, a specific thing that Peter discovered in his lifetime that drew his heart to Jesus and made him all about him. The first one was this, where Peter discovers the power and mission of Jesus in Luke 15, or Luke 5, rather, where Peter discovers the power and the mission of Jesus. This is the very first instance where Jesus calls Peter. This is where Peter gets called to be a disciple. So let me set up the, the story really, really quick. First is Jesus is hot on the scene. He's walking around. He's healing people. He's teaching, right? And Jesus, like word of Jesus is spreading everywhere, all throughout Galilee, all throughout the land. And he's gaining a bit of a crowd, a bit of a following, right? And so we come to Luke 5, and it says that Jesus was about to begin to teach, and he was at the shore, but the crowds pressed in around him so much it was like a mob that Jesus had to get into a boat, set out to the sea a little bit, and preach from there because he knew they wouldn't follow him into the water. They would just stop right there at the shore. Now imagine hard, pressing, tons of people coming, right, to hear him speak, to hear him teach, right? Some of them bringing their, their, their lame relatives and friends there to be healed. Jesus is healing multitudes of people, and they're coming together to hear Jesus. And he gets into a boat. You know whose boat he gets into? Peter's, right? Now, Peter and Jesus haven't met yet, and the text says that he just got done with a night shift. How many of you guys are real chipper and up for extracurricular activities after a night shift? Yeah. Nobody, right? What do you want to do? You want to go home and go to bed, right? And here's this Messiah guy jumping in your boat, like, uh, hey, this is going to be really quick, man. I'm just going to teach these people. I hope we just take this boat out, right? It's like, who is this guy, right? Like, Get out of my boat, man, right? That's got to be what Peter's thinking, right? Remember now, he's just an average blue-collar guy like you, right? Peter would have been thinking some things, like, who, who does this guy think he is? And so the boat sets out, Peter goes along with it, and Jesus teaches the people from there, and after he's done, after he spends his time teaching the people, right, and he's done, turns to Peter and says, you know what, let's go out a little bit farther, right? And he says, I want you to go out and I want you to drop your nets down. And Peter turns to Jesus and goes, Jesus, you have no idea. We just got done all night laboring, toiling, catching fish or not catching fish. And it says that, it's, Peter says he had, they had a very, very disappointing night. After a bad day at work, you want to go home. You want to sleep it off, right? You want to wake up in the morning, and you want to get back at it. You don't want to just stay there at work. You want to leave work. That's what you want to do when you have a bad day. And Jesus goes, no, here's what we're going to do. Go out, set out a little bit deeper, set your nets down. On top of that, it's broad daylight, right? 
commercial fishing, large nets, hard to catch fish in broad daylight, and yet Jesus tells them to do this. And they drop their nets down, and they pull in so many fish that Peter has to call for a partner that was far away to come over, a fellow fisherman, because they've caught so many fish that they can't fit them all in Peter's boat. They have to put more in another boat. And on top of that, they fill both boats, and the text says that both begin to sink. Both boats begin to sink. That's a lot of fish. That's a lot of fish. And in that single instant, here's Peter listening to Jesus talk. Maybe he's grabbing onto some of his words. It doesn't say. But Peter may be unconvinced, and Jesus wants to show Peter his power. He wants to show him his authority that he has. Tells him to set off, drop a net, and they catch so many fish that he has to call a buddy over, and on top of that, both of their boats are sinking because of that. And in this moment, Jesus shows Peter that he's not just some guy, right? He's not just some blowhard blowing a lot of steam, a lot of hot air out of his mouth. When he talks about God, he does so authoritatively. When he does so enters this world, he does so authoritatively. Jesus shows Peter his power, his authority over the created world. And Peter is humbled in this moment. Imagine, right? Imagine Peter. This guy's a fisherman. It's what he does. It's his job. And he's labored all night and comes up with nothing. And now this Messiah teacher guy who's a carpenter is going to tell Peter to go out and how to do his job? Peter's inability and inadequacy as a man, right, as a worker, as a fisherman is on full display. And Jesus' power and extreme infinite adequacy is on full display for Peter to see. And Peter experiences this. Jesus serves him, loves him, shows him his power, shows him his authority. And Peter is humbled and just breaks down. And he says these words. He calls a master. He says, Lord, depart from me for I'm unclean. Now what is it after seeing Jesus perform a miracle, right? After seeing Peter and his labor and toil and coming up empty and being extremely inadequate in his job, and for Jesus in a single instant to fill two boats so much so that they're sinking. Peter just humbles himself. And he sees rightly in that moment who he is in light of who Jesus is. The very first interaction that Peter has is he, with Jesus is he comes to see his power. He comes to see his, his adequacy, his authority. And Peter says, depart from me for I'm an unclean man. Depart from me for I am sinful. Jesus came to Peter and the boys after a night of failure. And Jesus shows them his ability, his power. So notice what's happening here. The very first moment when Peter runs into Jesus is this. It's a sober view of who he is and a truthful view as to who Jesus is. We can't move on in a journey becoming all about Jesus. We can't move on in a relationship with Jesus if we don't appropriately see ourselves in light of who he is. In the very first instance that Peter has with Jesus, he comes to see him rightly. That he's powerful, that he's authoritative, that he's great, and Peter's not. And he confesses his sinfulness, he confesses his brokenness. And then I love this. Peter turns to him in his brokenness, in his humility, and then calls him to get on mission with him. Now you would think Jesus would be out like looking for the best of the best, right? Right? I don't want these like guys that are just failures and adequate, can't even catch fish and he's a fisherman. 
Like, I don't want anything to do with this guy. Can't even do his job right, right? But what do we know about Jesus? Man, he loves to include broken, sinful, and a half-cocked world in his mission, right? He loves to take people, what? Who aren't bogged down, right? And, and built up in their pride, but rather people who are broken and contrite in heart, people who are humble. And in this moment, Peter discovers who he is and who Jesus is. And then he calls him, calls him to come into mission with him. And what does he say? Hey, Peter, you know, from now on, you're not going to be catching fish anymore. You're going to be doing what? You're going to be catching men. We're not going to be going after fish anymore. We're going to be going after people. You're now in the people business. And to let you know, I'm about this world, and I'm about people, and I'm about sinners. And when you follow me, you're going to be about sinners, and you're going to be about people as well. And Peter says, the text says this, they dropped everything and followed him. In one moment, Peter discovers the power of Jesus and the mission of Jesus. And from the very first single instant, Peter discovers that Jesus is about loving people, shepherding them, caring for them, healing them, sharing good news with them. Is it little wonder that when Peter writes in his letter that he reminded us of our mission, right? Peter dis discovered his mission and the mission of Jesus right here. And what did Peter tell us in 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10? But you are a what? A chosen race, just as Jesus chose Peter, right? Of all the boats to get in, Jesus got in Peter's boat, right? Jesus chose Peter. But you're a chosen race. Jesus has chosen you. You're a royal priesthood. And we talked about that, which means this. We're in and for people, right? We're in the weeds. Priests love people. They represent God. They represent the people to God. They care for people. And we're a holy nation. We're a people for his own possession. That you may what? Proclaim his excellencies. Proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you had received mercy. Peter discovered that. Never mind that. Peter discovered this in this moment. He was chosen by Christ. He saw his excellencies. And even in the face of his brokenness, Jesus shows him mercy. He says, you know what, Peter, you're exactly the kind of guy I'm after. Broken humble. You see a need for me, right? And he includes him in his mission. This is the very first interaction he has. Second one is this. Peter discovers to trust Jesus while he's walking on water, right? And this is probably one of the most famous, right, stories that we have of Peter and Jesus from Matthew 14, 22 to 32, right? You guys know the story. Jesus walking on water, right? Invites Peter to come out with him, starts to doubt, begins to sink. Let's just set up the story really, really quick. Disciples are out on a boat. Weather starts getting crazy. Now, a lot of these guys are fishermen. They used to be out on uh, ocean, lake, big bodies of water, okay, whatever it is. Sea of Galilee, probably. Right? They're used to being out there. And this huge storm comes. Now, to freak these guys out, it would take a pretty nasty storm. Pretty nasty storm. But they're out there, the weather starts getting crazy, and it's just chaos. What we often miss from this story 
is right at the beginning, what Jesus tells the disciples is he tells them to get in the boat and go out onto the lake, and he'll meet them on the other side. What we need to see is that the disciples are not in the storm because they were foolish. The disciples are not in the storm because they failed to recognize maybe the weather patterns, right? Like, man, maybe it's not so good that we go out right now, right? Let's stay off to the shore. It looks like there's a storm brewing, right? No. Jesus tells them to get into the boat and go to the other side. They are in the storm precisely because Jesus sends them out into the ocean. He sends them out onto the sea. They're not there because of their foolishness. They're not there because of their ignorance. They didn't get caught, right, in something, being dumb. Jesus tells them to go out there. They're in the storm because of something Jesus told them to do. So Jesus is purposeful here in this moment, tells them to go out, which I think is a good word for our trials, which I think is a good word for our storms in our lives, right? Sometimes we think it's because of our foolishness. Sometimes we think it's because of something we've done, and yeah, that might be the case. But a lot of times, Jesus just has a trial for us. He has a storm for us. He has something for us to go through, and he intends good in it. But Jesus comes to them in the middle of the night. It says like the fourth watch, right? So now we've rotated four guys now in the middle of this storm, some guys, right, they're on the, they're on the boats, they're, they're manning everything, can't do it the whole entire night, so guys are taking breaks there. And he comes to them right in the middle of the night, and he's walking on water. Jesus is walking on the water in the middle of a storm, right? Jesus comes to them. And at first they think it's a ghost, but then he calls to them. And they realize that it's the Lord. And Peter stands up, right, as the spokesperson, like I said at the beginning, for all 12. And he starts out strong, right? Peter starts out so strong. He goes, Lord, call me out to you. And Jesus says, all right, come. Peter got out of that boat. That's crazy, right? Storm, walking on water. Peter starts out strong. Lord, call me to you. Says, come. Steps out of the boat. First step. Solid. Probably thinking like, I can't believe this is happening right now. Right? Can you imagine what's going on in Peter's head? He's walking on water towards Christ. Peter starts out strong, begins to walk to him. But then Peter begins, right, to start looking away from Jesus. And I know you guys have heard this story a million times. Bear with me here. Try to put yourself in Peter's shoes. Starts out strong, staring at Christ, a heart full of faith, a heart full of joy, a heart full of probably like, like insane, like I can't wait to tell this story, like when I get back home kind of a thing, right? I'm going to put this on my Facebook page. Starts out strong, staring at Jesus. He's walking on water. And all of a sudden, looks to his left, looks to his right, and the storm, the winds, it says the winds, right, made him afraid. I mean, you have to be, have you ever been afraid by winds? I have at times, right? Like crazy winds, like, man, we got to get into the house right now. Are you in the basement? get underneath a doorway, something like that. This is these kinds of winds. He's afraid. He looks away from Christ. Peter begins to get fearful and anxious at the surrounding storm. Fear starts to set in. Doubt begins to set in. And it begins to sink. Now imagine, not only the winds, but you begin to sink. And you're too far away from the boat to get back. And you're far enough away from Jesus 
It begins to sink, and he just cries out in that moment, just utter desperation, because his heart begins to just get fearful and anxious, utter desperation. He cries out to Jesus to save him, and the next thing the text says is Jesus reaches a hand out, lifts him up, brings him to the boat. And it says, the text says, as soon as they get to the boat, the whole storm ceases and stops. And the disciples in that moment are so amazed that they all worship him as the son of God. But then the text records this little interaction that Jesus has with Peter. You can imagine Peter, right, heart racing, beating, right, trying to calm down, catch his breath. Jesus says, Peter, why'd you doubt? Why'd you doubt? Points out his lack of faith. Points out his lack of trust. A simple thing to just trust me. Sounds simple, doesn't it? How many of us find it simple to not doubt and to just trust when life storms just flying around? You know what I do? I take my eyes off of God. And I use all my resources and all my energy to try to fix my situations, my circumstances, and my scenarios. And I do it all by myself, and I rarely press into God and pray to him and keep my eyes on him. Anybody with me on that? Anybody with Peter on that? It's kind of hard. It's kind of hard to keep your eyes on Jesus, right, when the storm's insane. And I think Peter, I think, really represents all of us really well in this moment. And Jesus just softly comes to him and says this, why'd you doubt? Right? Puts his finger right on the problem. You doubted, man. Ye of little faith. And what we see is that Jesus is always pressing on the disciples about faith. Always pressing on the disciples about trust. Always pressing on the disciples about their lack of faith and their doubt. Why? Because the Christian life and the life that God has called us to is one of faith and trust in a person. His name is Jesus and his promises. That's what God's called us to. He's called us to a life of faith. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, I live by what? Faith in who? The Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And in the disciples, what we see is what Jesus says to us. He's always pressing in on this on us. Why did you doubt? Why did you look away? Why'd you try to take care of this on your own? Why'd you get fearful? Why'd you get anxious? Look to me. And Peter learned this doubt, trust, faith lesson hard, right? But we see that he learned it. A little bit later on in, in Peter's letter, we're going to read this from Peter. It says this, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Casting all your anxieties Casting all your fear in the midst of the storm. Casting all the things that you don't have a clue how it's going to end up or which way it's going to go. Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. On his way to becoming all about him, Peter learns in a dramatic way the difficulty of trusting Jesus. Jesus shows Peter that he's trustworthy and powerful in the midst of trials. Shows him that in a pretty dramatic way. And sometimes it might not be us walking on water or sinking, but sometimes it's got to get so bad for us, right, guys? It's got to get so bad for us that we come to the end of our rope and the end of our resources and we say, you know what? The only place I have left to go now is to rest and trust in God, is to rest and trust in him. Peter learns the lesson that God's been teaching all of us our entire lives. We're inadequate. 
we only have so many resources to work our situations and our scenarios to, the, to what we want. And a lot of times it doesn't turn out that way. But there's one person who loves us and is sovereign, who he's called us to press our hearts into and trust and rest in him. And so in that story, in a really crazy way, Peter learns to discover, to trust, and he learns that we can cast all of our anxieties, all of our fears, all of our doubts onto Christ. Why? Because he cares for us. And this is why we're all about him, right? He cares for us. He loves us, even in our little moments, even in our storms. Three more to go. Next one is this. Peter discovers the exclusivity of Jesus. I love this one. This is my favorite one. I shouldn't say it's my favorite one. The last one's pretty cool too. So John 6, right? This comes right after the feeding of the 5,000. So Jesus has just taken a little kid's lunch and has multiplied it for 5,000 people. Some people estimate the crowd's a little bit larger than that. And they have food left over. And so Jesus performs that miracle, um, teaches, they hang out, right? They go to sleep. They wake up in the morning, right? And what do you guys do when you wake up in the morning? I don't know about you. I head to the fridge, right? Start making coffee, right? I need, like, leftover pizza, bagel, something, right? I'm hungry, right? Well, these people are no different than you. So they wake up in the morning, like, where's Jesus? I want my sausage egg McMuffin, right? Like, where's my, uh, where's my number two with an extra hash brown, you know? Like, that's what they, they want, food. And Jesus just gave them food the, the night before. So they're thinking, man, Jesus is going to just whip it up, hook it up again, right? <clears throat> but he's not there. And so they look for his boat. Where's he at? Boat's gone. They think, man, he's probably to the other side. And I don't think all 5,000, but I think a good portion of them went over there to find Jesus, right? And they come to him and they're like, uh, what's up, Jesus? Thanks for dinner last night. Um, kind of hungry this morning. You got something for us, right? And Jesus just sees into their heart. And he loves to serve and he loves to give. But it seems like they were really only interested in Jesus for what he can give them. And they weren't really interested in worshiping him. We need to be careful about that. We need to be careful that we avoid approaching God like a genie, right? We rub the magic lamp, run to him, right, when we just want things. Instead of seeing that it's a trust-faith relationship that he's invited us into with a person, a person who's real and alive and risen and seated at the right hand of God. A faith relationship with an individual whose name is Jesus. And Jesus desperately wants to help them shift from thinking that God's just about doling out just whatever and just dispensing things, right? Instead of seeing the real person and the real heart and the real relationship that's behind that. So he calls them out and tells them, don't labor for the food that perishes. Labor for the food that's unto eternal life in John 6. And Jesus says a really, really weird way, a very, I think kind of like explicit, offensive way, he talks about trusting in him. I don't know if you guys remember it. Jesus says this. Here's what it means to follow me. Eat my flesh and drink my blood. What? All I know is I just want some breakfast, man. What are you talking about? Eat my flesh, drink my blood. Meaning this, be all in on me. Consume me. Be about me. 
right? Trust in me. These are very and very explicit, kind of offensive terms. Jesus says to trust in him, to consume him, to take in him, to embrace him. So much so they refers it to eating, right? Eat my flesh and drink my blood. It's a reference for faith, exclusive faith. And it says that everybody was kind of freaked out by that teaching. It was hard. You know what happened? All those people that crossed that boat who were looking for breakfast, they all took off. They all left. And Jesus turns to the disciples and goes, you guys going to take off too? You guys going to leave too? And Peter says one of the most profound things about the exclusivity of Jesus that I find in the Scriptures. He says this in John 6, 68 to 69. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Where else are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. There's nowhere else for us to go, Jesus. You're it. There's no more options for us. It's just you. A life that's all about him has discovered that there's really nothing else out there. It's the discovery that it's pretty much just Jesus. He's all we have, all we have in this broken, sinful, half-cocked world. No turning back. Nothing else will do. Everything else pales in comparison. It's just him and exclusively him. When you come to the point where Jesus is not an option, He's not even the best option. He's all we have. And no one else and nothing else matters. Just him. Are you there? Are you there? Is Jesus just a piece for you? Right? Is he an option for you? Have you gotten to the point where it says, you know what? I got nowhere else to go. Jesus, you're literally all that I have. And you're the most important thing in this entire world. And wherever you go, I'll go. And whatever you're about, I'm going to be about. That's what Peter discovered. Next thing, because I'm running out of time. And you guys know how I do with time. Number four, Peter discovers the glory of Jesus. Matthew 17 is called the Mount of Transfiguration. Peter, Jesus had 12, and he had an inner circle of three, Peter, James, and John. Peter was part of that. Brings him up onto the top of a mountain, right? And in this moment, Jesus somehow, some way, reveals his glory, Right? Now, Jesus' glory is hidden because he's humbled himself, right? He's flesh, but he's God, 100% God, 100% man. Somehow, some way, Jesus reveals just a portion of his glory, right? And God speaks from heaven. And these guys are there, Peter, James, and John. They hear God say, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. What does God have to say about his son? Approval, love. This is my son who I love. I'm well pleased with him. And Jesus reveals right? A fraction of his glory. He revealed himself to these three guys. And the journey for Peter comes to a place where he sees the glory of Christ. He sees the attractiveness of Christ. The glory. So many of us have a view of Jesus that is easy to ignore. So many of us have a view of Jesus that's easy to just kind of brush to the side, make him just be one piece among many, right? I'm about all these other things. I love these things. Jesus too, right? Some of us have a view of Jesus that's just so easy to just set aside, ignore, just walk away from. Peter comes to see who Jesus is in his glory, 
And it's one that led him to his face and to worship along with the three. Jesus reveals his attractiveness. He reveals his supremacy. He reveals a Jesus that you can't ignore, you can't walk away from. And our journey towards being convinced of Jesus' supremacy involves God himself dragging us up to the proverbial mountain to show us the beauty of Christ. To show us that Jesus is a treasure above all other treasures. One that you can't walk away from. One that you can't help but it affect you, transform you, change you. Not a Jesus that I can just easily brush aside, but the glorious eternal Son of God. And some of you are thinking, man, you know what? That would be great if I can just see Jesus like that. If I can just see Jesus like Peter, then maybe I wouldn't struggle with my faith, then maybe I wouldn't be so indifferent. Maybe I wouldn't just like, man, it'd just be so easy to walk away from him. I wouldn't struggle in my faith. And what we come to see is that God is still revealing the Son to us still revealing the sun to people, opening our eyes to see his beauty. In fact, Peter wrote these words in 1 Peter 1, 8 and 9 to a whole community of people who never saw Jesus like Peter did. He said this, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you've not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, though you do not now see him, meaning this, one day you will, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining what? The outcome of your faith, which is what? Salvation. That Jesus is still revealing himself. That God's still dragging us up the proverbial mountain to show us that Jesus is a treasure, that Jesus is amazing, and you can't worship Jesus unless God, by his grace, reveals his son to you. How do we know Jesus? How do we come to know him? How do we come to worship him? Is it something that with our own intuition and our own smarts, our own ability that we come to discover him? No, God reveals him to us, just like he did these three. And if you're here and God has revealed his son to you, be thankful and grateful because of his grace, because of his mercy. And if you haven't seen Jesus, if you have a view of Jesus that's just easy to ignore, beg God. Say, God, show me your son. Open my eyes that I can see, that I might have faith, right, in the glory of this son. Last one. Peter discovers the grace and heart of Jesus, John 21. This is one I, I really love this one because it's the very first recorded interaction that Peter has with Jesus after his betrayal and denial, after Jesus' cross and resurrection. This is the very first recorded interaction after Peter left Christ to be by himself, to suffer by himself, and after he denied him three times in that courtyard, this is the very first interaction that Jesus and Peter have recorded in the scriptures. Can you imagine Peter? He has just completely failed. Left Christ in his time of need. Failed in the garden when he tried to start a fight with Roman soldiers. Jesus is like, Peter, my kingdom's not of this world. Slaps the ear on the soldier, heals it right there. I don't know how those soldiers are like, yeah, let's just keep arresting this dude, you know, like, what? He's completely bombed, completely failed. His failure right in front of him. In fact, Peter went back to fishing in John 21. He goes, well, I guess this fishing for men thing's over. I'm going to go back to fishing for fish. And you know what? The text says that they are not catching anything. Peter's right back to Luke 5. 
his inadequacies and his failures on full display, thinking that this whole Jesus thing is done. And all of his buddies are out there fishing. They're not catching a single thing. Jesus told him what? Apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. Apparently not even fish. Jesus calls out from the shore. Hey, put your nets on this side. They pull in 153 fish. How do I know it's 153? John says it's 153. Immediately, Peter knows it's the Lord. And in perfect Peter fashion, jumps out of the boat, leaves all of his buddies behind to deal with 153 fish and comes to the shore. Now, what would you expect Jesus to do, say, to a guy who's just failed him, denied him, left him, displayed lack of faith? What would you expect Jesus to do on that shore? You know what Peter finds in Jesus after he's just failed him? Denied him. Jesus has breakfast cooked for him. And with arms wide open, embraces Peter and his failure. And that's good news to me. Because in the midst of my failure, in my discipleship, In my devotion to Christ, I never have to wonder when I return to him what his heart posture is towards me. He's at the shore waiting for me, ready to serve me, ready to embrace me, ready to give me all that I need. And get this, that little interaction that Peter and Jesus have. Remember this, John 21? He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And Peter said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus says to him this, feed my sheep. Not only is he ready to, to serve me, not only is he ready to embrace me in my failure, not, is it, not only is he ready with arms full of grace and love to us in our failure, he's ready to still send us out on mission and for us to be used by him. I love this. It ended where it began with Jesus and Peter. Jesus extends grace to a nobody fisherman. He's transformed as he discovers who Jesus is, as Jesus reveals who he is. And it changed the trajectory of his life forever to be about what Jesus is about. Fishing for men and feeding sheep. Be about people, Peter. I mean, if you look at how Peter was used by God in his kingdom advancement, it's ridiculous. Through Peter's own preaching, right? God opens and extends the kingdom to the Jewish people, Acts 2, Samaritans in Acts 8, and the Gentiles in Acts 10. The kingdom just spreads to people through Peter's ministry. Jesus used Peter as a bit of a tip of the spear for gospel advancement. And who's Peter? Who's Peter? He's the foot-shaped guy who's always doing dumb stuff. 
And he is who he is by the grace of God, which means we are who we are by the grace of God. And we're all about him because his love comes to us in our failure. And he sends us out on mission and uses us for his glory. Who is Peter? He's nothing more than a random sampling of the broken, sinful, half-cocked world that God and Christ loves, of which I and you are a part of. Guys, this is why we make a big deal of Jesus, because he's the only one in this world, he's the only one this world has ever seen that doesn't fall into the category of broken, sinful, and half-cocked. He's the sinless, matchless, supreme, glorious Son of God. He's the only hope we have, and because of that, we're all about him. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for extending grace to us. Thank you, this wonderful picture that we have. All of us have come into this place with our own version of what Peter had going on in John 21. And what do we find? A meal prepared for us. Food, sustenance, everything that we need. Encouragement, friendship, relationship, grace, mercy, and purpose. And God, what an example to us that we can jump out of the boat, jump out of the boat of our inadequacy, jump out of the boat of our failure, jump out of the boat of our sin, jump out of the boat in repentance and run back to Jesus who never tires, who never grows weary of embracing us, of loving us, of accepting us, and sending us. God, open our eyes like you did Peter's on that mountain to see his beauty so that we can be about this in our lives. Pray and ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.